Yeah. What, um, I got two more things I want to ask. Do you have a few minutes? Yeah. I'm, I just got, I'll let you go in a few minutes. I really just have two more things I wanted to ask you about. One is, um, there's brass bands showing up all over the world now. I mean, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying like it's happening this year, but talking about the last, you know, 15 years or so, there's the brass bands. I mean, they're everywhere. And they, clearly their model is things from here, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, maybe they have other music in there. That, what is your... How do you see that? Well, 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 so first they're going again, going back, you know, in, in the aspect of history. Um, and there's a researcher by the name of um, Southern. I think her name is Ellen Southern. I don't have my notes in front of me. I think her name is Ellen Southern, who did a lot of um, research on Black American music making. New Orleans wasn't the only place with with brass bands. Okay. I mean, that's very important. Uh-huh. And I think sometimes. Um, we think that we are. You yeah. know, we're the birthplace of jazz and you know, brass bands right. came from here. Okay. Almost every major urban urban metropolis in America that had a large um, African American and black population had brass bands. Because the brass bands grew out of military bands. Because also in many of these communities there were benevolent societies, the same way we have associated pleasure club societies. So this was a part of, of, of African American communities throughout the country that existed. Um, Louis Jordan, the great saxophone player from Arkansas. Um, his dad was a brass band musician and also a teacher. You know, um, Philadelphia had a large brass band population. Um, so it wasn't that it was just unique to New Orleans, but there was some some unique social, cultural histories that made New Orleans different from those other places. One was, you know, one I think has a lot to do with our racial makeup in a way that we, we've racialized ourselves, okay. you know, where many other parts of the country, you know, you were either, you know, black, white, essentially, you know, um, of course, way back, of course, there was still the other, it wasn't just racialized, it was more ethnic, you know, uh-huh. separation or, or ethnic identification. But in New Orleans, we never really had that because we were always on our own, you know. The French took us and didn't want us. The Spanish got us and didn't know what to do with us, so they gave us back to the French, you know. Then we became America. America ain't know what to do with us for a few years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we've just kind of always done our own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the laws that we've had, everything from the Code Noir, you know, being able to, which was the, the black codes, which stated that the people of color, you know, had Sundays were off days and, you know, mythical kind of Congo Square, it was legal to perform, you know, to congregate and do what essentially what you chose to do, pray, dance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mythical Congo Square. I call it mythical because there is some research that states that a lot of the history of jazz and of black American music, specifically jazz, um, firstly was written, the early writers were all French primitivists, uh-huh. you know, who wrote their pieces on the notions of um, racial hierarchy and uh-huh. racial dominance. Uh-huh. So a lot of the history regarding black music is based in these notions of, of being primitive people uh-huh. that, um, like in New Orleans, the music, Buddy Bolden learned the music that became jazz from his childhood memories of watching people dance in Congo Square. Right. 
you know, and that Congo Square played the biggest role in the development of jazz, and also that um, musicians were able to somehow, uh, uh, blacks were able to somehow tap into the cultural memories that survived the transatlantic trade, slave trades. And that's where the cultural knowledge came from. Uh-huh. So from surviving the, the slave trade, they remembered the music. They remembered things from Africa. Mm-hmm. They remembered the dances and you know the music making of Africa. And they remembered um, aspects of Congo Square, where those dances of Africa was emulated. Uh-huh. And that's the origins of jazz. Okay. You know, and I mean, if it sounds, it, it it makes a good story. Uh-huh. It really, and that's the story of our of our jazz. Uh-huh. But when you look at it from a practical perspective, and and again, what made me so vested in this research and got, why I got so excited was because when you look at it from a practical perspective, you know, Buddy Bolden, according to the historians, learned his music from Congo Square. Well, who taught him the embouchure? Uh-huh. Who taught him how to create an embouchure on the trumpet? Yeah. Who taught him the notes and the order of the notes, et cetera, et cetera? But what most of the history has left out is that Buddy Bolden went to school. Buddy Bolden went to Fisk School, which was a black school in the story in a black Storyville district, uh-huh. which was located where present City Hall is located. Okay. Louis Armstrong attended that same school. Uh-huh. You know, the 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 early the, the jazz historians paint the picture that Buddy Bolden was a part-time pimp, part-time numbers man. They called him the darkest of dark Negroes, which meant he was just dark, black, and ignorant. You know, so and so. Buddy Bolden grew up on First Street in a very ethnically mixed community, you know, essentially would be considered a working class community. Uh He got lessons from his next door neighbor. He also got lessons at school because the principal of the school, of Fisk School, was a very acclaimed musician himself, him and his wife. Louis Armstrong went to that exact same school. Louis Armstrong took music lessons. Louis Armstrong, yes, he went to juvenile detention. He also took music lessons and learned music making in juvenile. Danny Balker talks about the cultural mentorship that took place in the neighborhoods and in the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Sidney Bechet, who didn't want to go to school, but he learned the music from the older musicians. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But if you read the histories, you don't see that. Yeah. You know, it's just really this. I call it mythical because it's it's like this 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 magical illusionary aspect. You know, and I almost say like, you know, what the historians have told us is that if you find this 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 place called Congo Square, almost like the fountain of youth, and you drink a cup of this water, that wow, you're gonna become this great musician. But that leaves out so many of the important factors, man, of how this music has really been able to continue and has been perpetuated, and how the cultural knowledge has been passed on from one generation to the other generation. And that's the heart of my research. You know, I mean, I've never, my dad never told me a story that he bought, he went down to. Congo Square with a saxophone and suddenly learned how to play music. He did tell me he started playing music at, started taking music lessons when he was at Durham High, Durham Middle School, uptown. Okay. You know, I have not met one musician yet that have told me that their grandparent, or great-grandparent or somebody sat down and, you know, was able to hum for 15 minutes and they got this cultural knowledge and saw images of what happened in West Africa. Uh-huh. And suddenly they blew a whistle and became a musician. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I'm saying it in a very, you know, satire type of way. Cool. But at the same time, that's how the history reads. Yeah. You know, in a very satire type of way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Pre-Civil War stories, though. But I mean, yeah, I, I wonder whether uh, 
So, so now, okay, so this is so what you were saying is that we have um, the, the way that New Orleans racializes itself is, uh, I, I'm glad you, thank you for explaining that, because that's good, as you mentioned a few times, I just, in case somebody listens, mm -hmm. don't know what you mean by the word, because mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a really important point that the, 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 the mythical uh, Congress square, but, but just to get, the, we went on that tangent, you were talking about the racialization, the way New Orleans racializes itself, because we were discussing brass bands, in terms of the way brass band, um, now brass bands are. Well, I was saying now brass bands are coming out everywhere, and you were saying that. What makes them special? Yeah. Yeah, or what your feelings were, of, or what what, how, what your thoughts were on this, um, because then you were talking about brass bands anywhere, and that there are black communities around around America. But it seems to me that what we're seeing is people doing. It looks to me like clearly inspired. You know, people in Japan and France that are completely. It looks the model looks to me like they heard a dirty dozen records. Well, that, that that's what, what what made us when I was going too deep. So I'll get on these historical tangents. No, that's good. I but um, it's, it really is what, what the, you know not only our racialization and in, in the way that we have socially been able to navigate as a community, and that's something that I've been proud of. I mean, we've had our issues, we have our problems. You know, we dealt with segregation like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Black couldn't go into the French Quarter until the seventies. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Louis Armstrong refused to come back because you know we know the things he dealt with, you know, you can't go in this hotel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, so I'm not trying to create this situation like we were this utopia, we weren't this utopia, but at the same time, if you, if the way that, that New Orleans um, racialized itself was still completely different from anywhere in the country, mm -hmm. the other aspect is that we have always been a city of performances, and those performances have always taken place essentially where? In the public. And in the streets, you know, this is the only city. Well, pre-Katrina <laughs> was the only city where you get five guys and some instruments, and you just go march down the street. Yeah. And before you know it, you got 75, 100 people with you, and nobody would actually tell you shit. I mean, I grew up that way. You know what I'm saying? It was in in for for, for people of color. The second line parading, the benevolent societies, um, and I mean, we can go on and on because again, what makes us different. The benevolent societies played a completely different role in New Orleans. You know, the, the heart of what they do is the same everywhere. But the way that we express those things in New Orleans were much different mm -hmm. with, the, with the importance of the jazz funeral. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, and the role that the jazz funeral plays would have in the Sunday second lines, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the role that those second lines play. And just with the second lines of the jazz funerals, you know, for people of color, that has always kind of been a way of taking their rights to the city. Mm -hmm. You know, we may not, we may be dealing with these social ills like segregation, et cetera, et cetera. But with the second line, we're going to go where the hell we want to go. Right. And ain't nobody going to stop us. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? The police may come, but what they're really, really going to do. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, whereas in other places, I would, and again, I haven't done that. I think that's going to be some follow-up research that I'm going to do um, in my next book to try and figure out how everything comes back to New Orleans. Uh -huh. But in, just in a, in a nutshell, the music making and, and cultural practice of the brass bands in New Orleans, I would say, has outlived the music making and cultural practices of brass bands everywhere else. Because there was such a demand for it. Right. Whether it was a party, a wedding, a jazz funeral, Lincoln Beach, Punch a Train Beach, you know, right. what 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 do you have? You have a brass band. Right. You know what I'm saying? So the need was maintained. The, 
there was yeah there was there was always a, a need to have the brass band, which kept the brass bands working. You know, even we go back to I mean, what's what PB Pinchback. You know, it was a governor pinchback, um, PBS pinchback, who was a member of one of the benevolent societies. You know, this goes back to Helen's research, I want to say, that talks about that even the politicians kind of provided a, a, a need for the brass bands to consistently perform yeah. for political events. You know, they were themselves a part of these benevolent societies. Whenever the benevolent society had a party, a parade, a funeral, would they have a brass band? Oh, yeah. You know, political tie, yeah. you know, whereas that didn't exist in, you know, other locales. So now, going to your point, you know, you you have New York, you're starting to see some brass bands, you're like the high and mighty brass band, the marching, the marching fourth brass band, um, coming out of Chicago, you have the hypnotic brass ensemble, um, Madison, Wisconsin, you have Mama Dig Down, the young Young Blood, Young Blood Brass Band, I think uh, is the proper name of them. There's one in LA you know, too. But then, of course, you go to Japan. You have a whole industry of brass bands. Yeah. You know, But I would say that they're all, yes, looking at the New Orleans brass bands and doing the best they can do to emulate them. Yeah. I mean, we met Mama Dig, the cast from Mama Dig Down back in the 90s. And Mahogany would go to Madison, Wisconsin, in that area twice a year, and those guys come down to New Orleans twice a year, oh. Jazz Fest and Mardi Gras. Uh-huh. You know, and they—I they, mean—they easily state that they come down to New Orleans, they check out, they record, you know, they see what the brass bands are doing. Then they simply go back to Madison and they—they they emulate that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and the last thing, so because uh, I, I don't know if any of that made any sense or not, but no, it made sense. I mean, it's I was always asking what your feelings on it, so it's fine. It can't, it can't not make sense. But my my feelings, before my feelings on it is, I think it's great. My other feeling is, and it's going all the way back to our cultural mentorship. At the same time, I think it's important that more of the New Orleans musicians. I think it's important that for the brass band musicians in New Orleans to understand the vitality of their agency mm-hmm. and what that music creates for them, the cultural capital, the social capital, the economic capital mm-hmm. that this music allows for them. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference, what I'm seeing on some levels from some of the New Orleans bands and some of these bands in other places. Mm-hmm. They're taking it and they're, going, they're doing their own thing with it and going worldwide and nothing's wrong with that. But I think if we continue on the path that we are with the younger musicians, mm-hmm. again, we're going to find ourselves what we're left behind. Yeah. But people are going to be able to, you know, take what we have and do better with it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's I mean, it's, it's like the American Car Company. You know, yeah, we can say that we created the first car with Henry Ford. But you go to, it's funny, you go to Germany, Audi will tell you they made the first car. Okay. <laughs> you know, but anyway, that's yeah. another thing. Uh, but, you know, I mean, either we can continue... Um, trying to be the best and keeping this music alive while still promoting and pushing this music for a better future. Or we can just let it be the street music music with, on Frenchman Street, on the corner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where these local cats are not going to reach the level of success and other audiences that can really help better themselves. You know, And I've always approached it, and it's something that hurt McCarver with Pinstripe and what my dad had taught me. I've always approached this both as music, as education, but also as a business. Uh-huh. Interesting. The New Orleans has much that goes on besides brass band music. Uh, 
terms of the amount of music traditions that are, that are, that are out there or things that you see, um, what how does that in, how does the brass band uh, music interface with all the rest of the, of the music that goes on in the city or that comes from the city which I actually think is undergoing the same kind of problematic shift in itself mm -hmm. I mean, regardless of regardless of what, what's going on but you know I think that whether people are playing you know I mean it's whether it's the music Kid Jordan used to teach a lot of people too. I mean, that's you know, that's going the way of the birds also yeah. out there. You know, mm -hmm. we have now and then people have taught at UNO and whatnot. Now it's you don't really see people doing that. But I'm wondering, there are so many languages here, and how you see that interface uh, amongst the greater, you know, the brass band thing amongst the greater New Orleans. Uh, I guess music vista or something. And if this question doesn't make any sense to you, we can we pull it off, and you can just the other options we can just talk about. I, I think I think one thing that makes the New Orleans the brass band music as it relates to the other music types of music in the city is that the brass band music is one of the purest, if not the well, I would say the purest localized style of cultural performance in the city. What I mean by that is it's reinventing itself. It's not taking outside influence to ground itself in. It's taking outside influence to repopularize itself, but not to make itself. So what I mean by that is let's use straight ahead jazz. Oh, that's just you. That would be considered the genre straight-ahead jazz. As you mentioned, you have you know people being taught by Steve Masakowski, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With the brass bands, you firstly with the brass bands, you I would think that you have the greatest population of local musicians. Put it like that. Yeah. Musicians that are born and raised in New Orleans. Yeah. Let's let's put it like that. Um, whereas in many other genres, you have a lot of cats who have come from other places to have learn. fell in love with the romanticization of New Orleans or come specifically to learn, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, you know, you're bringing what Monk told you to do. You're bringing what Miles told you to do, you know. Right. Um, you're bringing this worldscape. Yeah. And you're placing that worldscape on top of the New Orleans soundscape yeah. and whatever that particular genre is. Okay. You have a lot going on there. You know, and yeah. then you, you're almost forcing yourself because you have to be accepted in a, within. There are different audiences for different types, different audiences for different styles of music. The audience is going to have a certain expectation depending on certain genres of music you play. You know, if you play classical music, you can't impro you can't improvise around the classical music. If yeah. you play one wrong note in the Brahms piece, yeah. you didn't play Brahms. Yeah, right, you, right. you know, your chops ain't good. You know, right. the same thing if you're playing certain styles of jazz. Um, and you don't play it the way it was played, recorded in 1962, you know, by Jimmy Heath, then you ain't playing it. Yeah. Whereas with the brass band, essentially you do what you do, and the audience is forced to accept right. what you're doing. Now, you know um, I guess uh, the question is, I mean, I suppose the, the thing I was driving at is that, is that there are other things that are really clearly more, and even things about the brass band. I mean, like, you know, there's... Just to make my 
uh, my the the way that I'm the direction I'm shooting the lens here for this question mm -hmm. is uh, Louis Armstrong on his records uh, he would occasionally it would be all of a sudden there would be like a New Orleans fantasy he would present what a what a funeral was mm -hmm. what a jazz funeral was and in those things he was what he was presenting was suddenly particularly New Orleans as if the rest of the stuff that is there is not yeah now this is very interesting so that means to say that he was playing some kind of music that he considered a global or a world music and some things that he considered that were uh, from here. Mm -hmm. And they embody the sorts of things we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, similarly, you know, uh, the music, I mean, okay, there's, the, you know, I mean, New Orleans, the, 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 Uh, the, the, in what's promoted as New Orleans uh, music, you know, the things that are that tend to get out there are brass bands, of course, mm -hmm. uh, from us. Uh, what goes on with Marty Wright Indians, you know, about that music, the Indian music, which is largely related, obviously, for, for, but in some way. But uh, And the other thing is what turned into the different waves of rhythm and blues out after after the, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know, I, you know, there are guys like Fats Domino, massive world, other, other world figures after mm -hmm. that, and so I'm trying to work out the relationship in the, in the larger scheme of, uh, of things that come out of here, or whether they really, where everything, whether everything really is just following its own tack, and because it's, there's a strength in, in, in the fact that things are relatively locked into their own language, with, mm -hmm. even within the city, which of course is unique mm -hmm. in the world, that mm -hmm. we can have that many different separate languages, mm -hmm. or whether there's a greater discussion. Oh, well, I, I got you now. I think I better understand your question. I would. They're interrelated. I think it's a it's a it's a fabric. It's a it's a thread that goes throughout. And with that, if if we were to you know to catalog many musicians, specifically the New Orleans musicians, the New Orleans, you know cats who are from here, um, or, or cats who have called home this home for a while, you know, like yourself, when you came here, you truly immersed yourself mm -hmm. in the local. I mean, you, you know, you came to bring your own flavor, doing your own thing from the class mode, to et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, you immerse yourself in what is New Orleans, you know, what is New Orleans. If we were to catalog a lot of musicians, many to most of them go back to the brass band tradition. I mean, if we look at Winton, yeah. Went and started also. Went and participated with Danny Barker with the Fairview Baptist Church. So did Brantford. Um, so, you know, you look at R&B and blues, you have people like Big L. Big L started with the brass bands. You know, so there's a, there, there is a common language that threads through. Nicholas Payton, I mean, yeah. Nicholas Payton, one of the greatest trumpet players in the world. I'm going to just say what it is. Yes, it is true. He started with the All-Stars Brass Band, mm -hmm. which was a spin-off of a cultural mentorship with tambourine and fan. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. So, learning that vernacular, that brass band vernacular, and that brass band vernacular is composed of many things. One of them is a particular style of playing being able to 
say what you need to say while not while not out shouting the person next to you. Uh-huh. So being able to collectively speak, mm-hmm. you know, we could call this improvisation, or we can call this group improvisation. Uh-huh. You know, I think the brass bands are one of the greatest styles of music at this. You know, where you have seven cats who do very little verbal communication with each other, yet can string a song along, even a song they've never played before. You know, with Mahogany, we would always do this this thing at every performance where we'd make a song on the spot. Never discuss it, just start playing a song. But the language that we use allows us to be able to have a great conversation, a great musical conversation, without not over-talking the other person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one of the, the primary thread is that there is a cultural knowledge that goes through all the different vibes in New Orleans because it all goes back to, most of it goes back to the marching bands and the brass bands. You know, and Wednesday, um, Ellis Marcellus talked about that a bit. I mean, you start, you know, you start talking to cats about how they started, what was their influence, et cetera, et cetera. The majority of them would say, you know, marching band, a brass band, you know, and I just, I just think that it teaches a hell of a language to, to folk. Uh-huh. You know, again, you look at somebody like Tremont Shorty, you know, going back to the different vernaculars, you have the musical knowledge, you have the cultural knowledge, you have the entertainment knowledge. Yeah. You know, I mean, people look at, you know, Shorty, and unfortunately, Noka, you know, some folk want to give all the credit to say, you know, no, you know, Tremont Shorty is who he is because of Noka. He went to Noka. Trombone Shorty was going to be who he was whether he went to Noka or not. You know, he was, he was born just a, with a gift. You know what I'm saying? But again, he's been immersed in that style of communicating with which is, you know, the brass band vibe for so long that it's spontaneous. So you know how to put an audience in the the palm of your hand, you know, and one of the things that you can truly tell, um, James Walsh, Jimbo, plays with this new group that I'm doing, Eser Mueller. Oh, is he? Yeah, he plays, oh, great, okay. he plays keys with us. And one thing that he said from the, the start is that he was excited because all the other cats are brass band cats. Yeah. You know, or started as brass band cats. Yeah. Um, but what, as, we've, as we've grown and as we've played, what he constantly talks about is the difference in the way that the music is communicated amongst y'all. The difference in the way that you entertain and connect with the audience. And it's just, what makes it so different, you can tell you're purely New Orleans. And that New Orleans musicians just have this particular mystique right. about them, about the way they communicate, you know? And I think it, I think it has a lot to do with that, that cultural knowledge and that cultural thread that's rooted in, again, the brass band and that so many cats either came directly from the brass bands or in some form of way, some form of fashion, have been influenced mm-hmm. by the brass bands, you know? And then you take that cultural knowledge and you do what Kermit has done, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You do what Shardy has done, yeah. you know? And it's odd, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, how Armstrong would some kind of way centralize, I'm gonna do New Orleans for you. Yeah. Because you look at Trombone Shardy, Trombone Shorty has this part of his show where he's like, I'm going to bring you to New Orleans. You know, Kermit has this, I'm going to bring you to New Orleans. You know, so it is almost this, I have this thing. Let me give you a bit of New Orleans. You know, so it is almost this thing of, you know, we want to be a part of the larger global scape, you know, global soundscape, you know, but at the same time, we want to root ourselves in what it means to be New Orleans, Uh you know. 
Um, and I think that's an important thing on no matter what you play. You, you can check out DeVale Crawford. And DeVale, DeVale will bring you from gospel to R&B to um, contemporary. But he's always going to bring you back to let me do New Orleans. Yeah. Whether it be closer walk with the, uh, sure. you know, you know, father too. Yeah. And so um, I'm just going to finish. I want to ask this. I think great. Thank you. But uh, uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't want to leave it. I don't want to leave you hanging. I, no, I, I go on and on and on. Sometimes I go on these tangents, but I'll go on. So, <laughs> I mean, but you just tell me if there's anything in particular you'd like to get out there and talk about. I, I just you know, like to offer the opportunity. But, you know, my thing is the music press is probably not going to ask you whatever they don't ask. You. Much yeah, they probably want to. And, you know, <laughs> so, you so know. I'm trying to at least, you know, at least have this somewhere for people. You know, the, the other, it's it's funny with that. I, I don't I don't do many interviews because of experiences I've had with more likely local press. Uh, the funny thing is that when, for a lot of what I've learned from a lot of press, is when they find out that you have some intellectual sense about you. Um, and that your voice is much deeper than just being a caricature. Yeah. They actually don't want to talk to you yeah. because you end up, you know, exposing the same things that doesn't make for popular media. Yeah. Like I, you know, like saying the myth, the you know, talking about the myth of Congo Square, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. You know, many folk don't want to hear about that. Yeah. You know, I I think it's important that. Actually, I think folk do want to hear about. It. I think newspapers are delusional and think they don't. That's why well, they're going out of business. It, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I agree, and I I think that it's an. I became a different person after Katrina, mm. and I too once was one of these musicians who just kind of went on the foray of all the histories and stories that we've been taught about New Orleans is what they are. Uh -huh. I just want to make sure it's on. Sorry. It's, yeah, it's still yeah, on. It's still on. Okay. One of the experiences that I guess I'm going to believe it, that everything happens for a reason. Uh -huh. So after Katrina, I started traveling a lot, mostly independently. You know, people asking me to come to New York and, you know, there's a house band, I'm performing with this band. And after a few months of doing that, I mean, I was making good money and I needed the money to take care of my family. I started feeling like a caricature. I started feeling bamboozled. And it hit me hard, you know, because I, I, I was like, man, these people just essentially need me to be up there because I represent what could be seen as the typical ideology of a New Orleans musician, you know? Um, and we can skip the story of how educated he is and et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's young, black, trumpet player, so and so and so. I put together this little band in Columbus, Mississippi and started performing around a lot. And I just started observing the way that people reacted to the music. And the reaction essentially was, can you play Dixie for us? Oh, can you play the Saints Go Marching In for us? And I remember one night going home just with my head hung low. My wife was like, what's, what's wrong? I said, honestly, Nick, I feel like a nigga. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I just feel like a pure caricature. You know, I feel like I'm expected to play this role of the bamboozled tap dancing, um, white-faced black guy that can play trumpet. Nobody really gives a damn about anything else that I'm doing, as long as I entertain them, that they're happy, you know? And that 
that sent me on a several year road of depression. And I mean, that probably led to just as much depression as me dealing with the post-cake bullshit of insurance, FEMA, being displaced, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because for the first time in my life, I'm like, man, I've traveled the world, you know, celebrating this music, man. I've worked hard to be, you know, the best musician I can be, you know, um, and the most entertaining musician I can be. But this is how I'm seen. This is what's expected of me. You know what I'm saying? And I advise him, I'll never play New Orleans music again. Fuck this shit. I'll never play this shit again. You know, if that's what it takes, if the only way that they're going to be able to respect me as a musician is to get up on stage and tap dance, I ain't doing it. Mm-hmm. Shit on that. I'm not doing it. Got to the University of Alabama, started, you know, started working there, um, and then I started a PhD program. And once I immersed myself in literature, you know, started really reading and reading different type of things. But that's when the light went off and was like, you know, your role has always been a bigger role than just performing as an educator. You know, um, the the local journalist and writer, um, he just wrote the book about New Orleans music in the 21st century, um, Jay Mazza. Jay Miles and I were talking one day at a Mahogany CD release party. I think this was a performance at at Louisiana Music Factory before the Jazz Fest. I think it was 08 or 09 or something. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Bryce, I'm thinking about writing another book, but you've been on my mind a lot. I think I really might want to write about you. I said, why? He said, you may have never noticed this, but you know you're the Danny Balk of your generation. Mm-hmm. You know, and what he meant by that is all the musicians that I have either taught or that came under my wing, that are now professional musicians, you know, both brass band and larger. Rynell Johnson that plays at Preservation Hall started with me. You know, his parents would not let him play secular music. They were very, very sacred people, um, religious people, and he could only play sacred music. We met at St. Oak. I was the only band that he allowed, they allowed to play secular music. And we would perform at my house on Thursdays out in New Orleans East after school, after band practice. They'd drive all the way from across the river and sit outside my house until practice was over with. You know, Irvin Mayfield started with me, you know. Um, Stephen Jones. I mean, the list can go on and on. I taught Calvin Johnson at McMain High School, you know. Um, and the list just goes on and on and on and on. And I'm like, you know, you know, I mean, your role has always been much bigger than just the music. And that's where I felt my call of research came in, is that you can be pissed off mm-hmm. or you can be the one to create the change. Uh-huh. And that's what, you know, and I'm not trying to change the world, you know, it's only a dissertation. Hopefully once I'm done and become that PhD, then I'll have the opportunities to, to really, truly have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. But just with this research alone, it's become so exciting because I think the story of New Orleans, especially the story of post-Katrina New Orleans, I think it needs to be told from a local perspective and from an honest perspective. Sure. You know, because a lot of people have sugarcoated. Oh, I agree. You know, a lot of people have been scared to say certain things because how is it going to affect, you know, their grant writing, you know, the people who give them yeah. money is, you know, you know, what's their political um, affiliation with certain groups and certain populations. So I can say this, but I can't say that. Yeah. You know, I want to say this, I won't say that, you know. Yeah. Um, but in order for us to really be taken seriously as a community, as a city, especially music, as a music community, and personally for me as a brass band community, Man, we have to tell a story and we have to be honest about it. 
you know, and we, and you know, for me, you know, one of the most important things is discussing the factors of what has made this music be able to continue for 200 years. Mm-hmm. It ain't Congo Square, whether Congo Square existed or not. It's been the classrooms. It's been the teachers in those classrooms. Mm-hmm. It's been the community. It's been the, the musicians who also were mentors in those communities. Uh-huh. You know, it's been the, the the agencies and organizations that have fiscally supported, and I don't mean the people that are now writing grants for certain people. I mean the social aid and pleasure club who scramble up to get twelve hundred dollars or thirteen hundred dollars to pay for a second line every Sunday. You know, but to pay each band twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. That might not sound like a lot of money. You know, but when they got five and six bands, you know what I'm saying? And you're doing it every week or every other weekend. Again, you're doing something that you can't do in New York, that you can't do in Chicago. You know, Kermit Ruffin tells the story of the first time they went to New York that they were bored, so they got a, a, a cardboard box and went outside their hotel and struck up the band and made tips. The police came and shut them down and said, man, you can't do this here. This is not New Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans that's what makes New Orleans special. Yeah. You know, that's what makes it what it is. But understanding not the disnified stories, not the disnified, you know, um, mythologies of, of what is New Orleans, but understand the practical and the reality-based things of what is New Orleans, you know. Again, this brass band music, music has existed, you know, for 200 years, way beyond the fact of some cultural transmission from the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. You know, Jonathan, I can't tell you shit about slave trade that I didn't read. You know, and I mean, and even that conversation, that brings you to a conversation that Nicholas Payton has been having a lot with his BAM movement of the fact of, you know, and I have this conversation myself, what that storyline does, firstly, is it puts everybody within the, every person of color within the lineage of slavery. Right. Not all people of color came from slavery. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, that takes, how much dignity does that take away from a person? Yeah. You know, if I came from royalty, Sure. You know, I mean, my dad could have, my great great grandfather could have been a prince of Haiti. Yeah, I'm just dark skin. He could have been a prince of Jamaica. Yeah, but now since I'm here, I have to go along with the storyline that my people came from a lineage of slavery. So thus, I'm completely unintellectual. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I have this bondage on my shoulders. Right. You know what right. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that we get away from that storyline. And the only way to get away from that storyline is to let people tell the story themselves. Let the people who are affiliated with these things. Yeah. You know, so like my research is grounded in um, oral histories, you know, ethnography and um, phenomena. You know, whereas I'm allowing the people themselves to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, you know, asking if there's anything else I need to say, I think I think that's important, man. I, I think for tourism, these these you know, these disnified stories of New Orleans and New Orleans' history, it may be important for that person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a black man, it ain't got much history in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, much positively known history mm-hmm. and contributions. You know, and even the contributions of, you know, of, of, of way before America became a country has been removed from the mental scape uh-huh. of the world. You okay. know, it's even taken out the out the out the you know out the books now. Uh-huh. You know, you know, Egyptians all, all of a sudden were all white with blue eyes, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Mesopotamia, none of that existed all of a sudden. You've uh-huh. lost all that legacy. You know, so for me as a person, it's important for me to understand the true realities of my history so I can pass it on to my son. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I can pass it on to other people in the community, uh-huh. specifically the community of color. Right. You know? Um you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you're from. Mm-hmm. And if you're only taught that you're from this dogmatic, dark, 
savage, savaged uh-huh. history. Yeah. What are you what, what are you gonna carry yourself like? Right. A dark fucking savage. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you know, some people could say it's a conspiracy, some people could say it's a ploy. I don't know. But when I was in junior high school at Bell at Andrew J. Bell, I was taught about my history. But I was also taught about my history at home. Mm-hmm. I was taught that, you know, I come from a legacy of kings and queens. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from a, a history of, you know, of, of people who Yes, some of some of the people that may have represented a physicality of of of, of a resemblance, a physicality resemblance of who I am, were a part of slave bondage, mm-hmm. like many other people were a part yeah. of slave bondage throughout the history of the world. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I come from a legacy and a history of you know the people who created astronomy, the people who created mathematics, mm-hmm. people who learned how to cultivate you know, the land and how to domesticate the animals, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the people who created currency and learned how to trade with that currency, mm-hmm. you know, the people who learned to survive when there was no ability to survive. Right. That's why I became the person I became, oh. because I've always had that, I'm, I'm somebody, I come from something, mm-hmm. and if I come from something, I can work to create something better. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad always told me a story. He bought his first house when he was 24, 25. Mm-hmm. I'll do you, dude. And I promised him that. I'm, I'll do you, dude. <laughs> I bought my first house right here in Carrollton when I was 21 years old. Great. Came from a European trip, saved all my money up two years in a row, saved all my gig money up. I bought my first house at 21. Great. You know what I'm saying? But that's what that history and that legacy does for you. You know, and I was kind of say, you know, that's kind of one of the most important things for me with as a musician post Katrina. Um, it is to entertain. It is to have fun. Um, it is to make music, but it's also to try and change the world in a different way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that we can learn while we're having fun. I think that we can learn while we're being entertained. You know, and you know, as a scholar and as a researcher. Somebody has to put forth the facts and the truth of what has happened, and specifically what has happened post Katrina. You know, everybody's telling a story except for us, and that that us is twofold. That us is locals, and that us is people of color. And I think it's important that we tell our own stories.